Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. For this podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Arunima Datta. Professor Datta is a historian of the British Empire and Asian history based at the University of North Texas. Her research focuses on the everyday experiences of labor migrants in the context of the British Empire, the particular emphasis on the themes of women's history, food, and emotions. She is the author of two monographs. First, Fleeting Agencies, A Social History of Indian Coolie Women in British Malaya, which was published with Cambridge University Press in 2021 and was the winner of several awards, including the NWSA Whaley Book Award, the WAWH Chowdhury Prize, and the NACBS Stansky Award. Her second monograph is entitled Waiting on Empire, A History of Indian Travelling Ayers in Britain, which was published, as we record, merely weeks ago by Oxford University Press. I look forward to receiving the same kind of attention and celebration as Professor Datta's first book. In this podcast, however, we'll be focusing on a book chapter, which is published between these two important monographs. It is entitled Race, Anxiety and Shopping in the Australian Outback, Indian Hawkers and Victoria's 1884 Smallpox Outbreak, which was published last year in the Routledge Handbook of Asian Transnationalism. Professor Datta, thank you very much for agreeing to record this podcast with me. So this chapter nestles in your CV between two books about South Asian women workers in the British Empire, the so-called coolie women in British Malaya and South Asian domestic workers in Britain. Can you explain how you came to the topic of these exclusively male Indian hawkers in late 19th century Australia? What is their story and what drew you to it? Yeah, thank you so much. And first of all, thank you so much for having me in this podcast. It's a delight to be here. So this project began where most historians begin their research interests, I guess, um, in a rabbit hole. I was finishing my first book and um, already started research on my second book. And in a file about a traveling Aya trying to get back home from London to India, there was a mention of her getting some kind of input from a hawker she had met. And I made that note in my little notebook and left it at that. The file was inconclusive, so I couldn't really identify the racial identity or ethnic identity of the hawker. And it just stayed there as a mental note. When I was finishing the second book, I was looking for things that might have gone amiss and could be standalone projects and the hawker pops up again. And so I tried to investigate a little bit more about hawkers in the British Library. And then I come across a file where there is a more elaborate mention of hawkers in respect to Australia. And digging further deep into that file, it becomes very evident that the hawker's identity is that of an Indian migrant hawking his way around in Australia. Um, and by that time, I was also working on a standalone article about horse groomers from Australia to India. And this hawker was trying to get a ticket back to India by trying to become a horse groomer so that he could work his way back to India because he was tired of hawking in Australia and just wanted to go back home, but didn't have funds. 
And that kind of brought me to this project of um, hawkers in Australia, what their life was like. And uh, this was also at a point when we were kind of locked up in our own houses. Archives were locked down during COVID. Um, so I was looking for archival sources, which I could use sitting home. And thankfully, the Australian archives is so beautiful in its ability to make things accessible to researchers because of its fierce digitization um, commitment. And that allowed me to look through Hawker's um, lives and stories. And it initially, it was just a inquiry that I wanted to get into because they were being treated a little bit differently from the women that I had been studying, be it the coolie women, be it the human alarm clocks, uh, the knocker uppers in London, or be it the traveling ayahs. So definitely this was shifting gears, but it really intrigued me how migrant male workers across the British Empire were treating, were, were being treated compared to the women in, in similar networks, because in the same files of the hawkers in Australia, I would also find ayahs and amas from Asia going to Australia in a different kind of role, in a different kind of work, right? Uh, but the story of the hawkers struck me as an incredible story in their own right, because they were at a given point a laborer but also not really a laborer because of their reliance on their own networks of trade, their own networks of migration. They were not being hired to work as hawkers um, in Australia. So their, their migration patterns were also different. Um, so there was a there was an interesting conversation in my head from the beginning to kind of compare the migration networks, the migration trends, and also the, the experiences um, when it came to hawkers compared to a solely female profession like that of the traveling ayahs. But all that said, there are many ways in which these projects kind of come together because all of them show my continued kind of commitment as a historian to decolonize world history by approaching it from the colonized people's story and not from the colonizers story um, or from the commodity story. These were in many ways human commodities, but they were also colonized subjects in move, right? So my my commitment is to bring forth the story of those who moved from colonies either to the metropole or through intercolonial networks and basically try to facilitate a world history uh, through the lens of South Asian mobilities. So the, the chapter itself um, focuses on one specific event in this history of uh, Indian hawkers in Australia. And that is through an outbreak of smallpox in Victoria in 1884. And I wonder if you could kind of speak to this event's kind of importance, the overall history of, um, or what it tells us about the overall history of um, Indian hawkers in, in Australia. Does this point mark a transition in the hawkers experience? Um, or does it simply typify kind of ongoing trends that just really um, are clarified at this kind of moment of crisis, at this moment of smallpox outbreak? 
Yeah, so the hawkers had a very unique position in the Australian outback. On one hand, they were heavily relied on by rural settlers and also urban traders to make that connection of buyer and consumer and seller because they would bring those goods from urban centers to rural uh, families. And um, not only that, in many instances, sometimes because the hawkers would have developed a regular familiarity with the clients that they served, if the clientele family was facing some kind of economic issues or hardships, there were even hawkers who would loan them money. So in many ways, there was a crucial reliance on these hawkers. But that being said, because of the immigration laws, and because of the racial discussions about who is fit to stay, who is safe as an immigrant in a settler colony, they were coming in as single men because the immigration law disallowed them to bring in partners or families. And that made them suspicious. And this was not just like a one-off case. This, this kind of fits into the global British Empire narrative of we cannot trust single male migrants because this is the same kind of surveillance and suspicion we get to see when Lascars were moving to Britain and there were constant newspaper reports about save the white women from the Lascars uh, roaming the streets of London. So it kind of fits that global narrative within the British Empire. But that being said, there was always this racist attitude also towards the Punjabi Sikh men who were coming in as hawkers from India. And there was this suspicion about, are they hygienic? Are they moral? Are they drinking too much? So on and so forth. And what happens during the 1884 speckled disease or the smallpox um, epidemic is that those racist discourses become much more visible. They become hyper visible in many ways. And it shows how those, you know, alleyway conversations about health, disease, hygiene and race were kind of taking a foreground in any kind of discussion that was happening about hawkers in newspapers or social communities. So what happened is there was this outbreak and there were only approximately 30 cases, but there was this hysteria that uh, this is going to be an epidemic and this is being caused by these men who we don't know, who do not look like this. And it kind of relates very closely to the yellow peril that had already been happening in Australia about Chinese immigrants. So in many ways, there is a lot of connection and the context allows us to understand why this was happening at this point of time. And while this happened, there was investigations done, and finally it was found out that the hawkers had nothing to do with it. The disease had arrived in Australia through infected furnitures and old clothes from the UK, from ships coming in from UK. And when this came out, the hawkers, in especially Victoria, who pursued solitary trade, 
came together. And before this, we don't see them kind of unionizing or coming together uh, because it was a very solitary kind of trade. But after they were uh, kind of proven to be not the culprit of this disease, they wanted to get rid of that stigma and the stereotyping that was being directed to them. So they come together and they try to negotiate with the central health board officials to clear their name and give them some kind of reparations. That does not happen necessarily, but it shows how this incident allowed the stage for the hawkers to capitalize on the quintessentiality of their profession to the outback and remind the society about their dependence on the hawkers and the great uh, greater support of network that they could build by, you know, coming together. So, so in many ways, it did shift the experience of the hawkers by kind of bringing them together, uh, allowing them to find a unified voice, allowing them to realize there is a power in uh, negotiating that they could have, they could access. Uh, but in many ways, it is just a continuance of the racist discourse about epidemics and morality that we get to see not only in Australia, but other parts of the empire, as much as the empire at home in the metropole. So in terms of, you mentioned about the, the discourse, this racist discourse becomes much more visible at this time of perceived crisis, where you can actually see 30 um, cases of smallpox as a crisis, where this is an invented crisis to reinforce racial stereotypes, is, is another matter. But we call it perceived crisis. Um, and this really comes through in the sources that you consult for this uh, piece, um, which are uh, English language newspapers, to, to a large degree. I wondered, how did you come across these, news, these newspapers in particular? You mentioned the Australian Digital Archives. Um, but are there other archives that you um, have consulted or that you wish to consult and could consult now that the COVID restrictions have been mostly lifted? And also, I suppose the other question here is, um, did these newspapers mediate the migrants' voices um, as they responded to this racial discourse? Uh, and how did this um, kind of affect um, responses and also your analysis? Yeah, thank you for that. And this is something that I am constantly haunted by what um, Carolyn Steedman talks about as the archival fever, right? The silences in the archive are a haunting experience. And no matter how full-fledged an archive is, there will always be a silence that we can't mediate. In this case, the silences were much more because I was working from um, a point of being stuck and not necessarily being able to go to the several archives that I would have usually gone to for a project like this. Um, so as you did point out, majority of the archives were Australian based because the archives in India did not have the digitized sources that I had located for this project. And there was no way of going to India at that point of time during COVID. So absolutely, I would like to explore those archives in India, but also in the UK. But that being said, while majority of the newspapers that I have looked at are English newspapers from the settlers or from the colonial perspective, there were some 
newspapers or some letters that were actually written by hawkers themselves. And that allows us to get a little bit of glimpse of their voices and their experiences. But that being said, that is a voice of a probably a privileged hawker who is very literate and very privileged in uh, being able to, you know, make their voices heard. There must have been other hawkers whose voices kind of got silenced um, in the group narrative, right? Um, so those are those are silences that I had to navigate through. Uh, also, another thing that I would wish to explore is especially for all my other projects, I have been very lucky and privileged to be able to find survivors and do some kind of oral histories and ethnographic study with them. If given a chance, I would actually love to explore any kind of oral history narratives or any kind of interviews that I could do with descendants of these hawkers if they are still there and willing to share their stories. But it's just something that I haven't been able to do yet. Wonderful. Um, I want to return now to a theme which is obviously prevalent in, in all your work, really, and this is the issue of gender. And, and and trying to unpick, I suppose, the, the role of their of the hawkers being exclusively male had in their reception and the creation of this highly racialized discourse. I suppose one one of the questions I have in this context is um, the material goods that um, hawkers sold, that the male hawkers sold. Um, in your article, you note um, one anonymous letter writer who emphasized how their wares appealed particularly to women um, in Australia. And I suppose I wondered how the the fact how does the fact that the hawkers were exclusively male and that they're trying to appeal to him does this really shape the racialized discourse in any way? And I suppose does it shape this construction of empire in particular way as well? Yeah, that's a very great question. So the hawkers brought in goods, all sorts of goods, not only just Indian goods, not only um, just goods from other colonies. They also brought in anything and everything that they could find. However, when focusing on the Indian goods, there is there are several things happening in that kind of snippet when a hawker is selling the Indian goods. First of all, anything they could sell, they would have to get a license for. So in many ways, the administrators were actually approving those exotic trades that or wares that they were selling. And in many ways, that was allowed and even kind of uh, pushed for because that was a way to make people in the outback, the rural spaces, be able to consume the empire which other way otherwise would not have been so easily accessible to them uh, but at the same time there was this narrative that the hawkers were charming their customers too much with the exotic wares from the south asian subcontinent and uh were importing you know, their own trades through illegal intercolonial networks from India. So there was a lot of suspicion. So on one hand, ooh, we get to consume the empire. But on the other hand, there is the suspicion. How are they getting it? How reliable are they? And what quality are they? Both of these happened 
together simultaneously in that space. But when that outbreak happened, there were specific comments made about uh, goods they brought from India, almost as if it was their body and their goods from India that were causing the disease and not necessarily any other goods. And so it kind of just shows that these exotic goods were very much desirable, but also suspicious in terms of morality, in terms of quality, and in terms of disease that they brought in. Now, to go back to the idea of gender here, in many ways, it's very weird to see that the women had become very intimate in terms of their friendships with the hawkers because they would specifically say what kind of uh, clothing, what kind of accessories, what kind of curry powders they would like from the hawkers. So in many ways, they, they were expressing their consumption needs, be it con consuming internally as in food, but also consuming as, you know, uh, clothing. And that reliance, while appreciated, while um, in many ways allowed, was also constantly being questioned by the husbands, by the politicians because they were constantly saying are are the hawkers trying to play mind games with these women to make them more addicted to their wares from south asia which again kind of brings out this whole narrative that white women need to be saved from brown men brown bodies but in this case brown cultures also but it's it's this ambiguous narrative right where on one hand yes let's explore let's consume the empire but at the same time when the woman is the real buyer the forefront of the buying capacity in that outback household there is this suspicion because it's the white woman transacting with a brown body because the men would be gone to the farms when the hawkers would come to the households and it would just be the women conversating, transacting with these men. Yeah, and, and you definitely get this, um, as you said, this whole idea that white women need to be saved from uh, brown men, brown cultures. But in the context of the 1884 outbreak, also ostensibly a brown disease. Now, of course, we now know that the that it wasn't, um, a, there was a disease brought from um, Britain, that small cups came from Britain in this case. Um, but I wondered um, about how, what does this kind of linkage between saving white women from um, brown um, men, from brown cultures, how, what does that, the linking with between that and the saving from so-called brown diseases say about the history of medicine uh, in this context? Um, what does it tell, does it tell us anything about the interplay between uh, race and disease in 19th century British medical practice, especially in its colonies? Is this like a public discourse? Or is this something that's happening in the medical profession as well. Oh, absolutely. And this is not something just 
we get to see as a one-off case, right? Um, across the globe in the colonized world, we see these narratives about bodies of color being categorized, stereotyped as sources of disease. And there have been important scholarship by Leonard Manderson, David Arnold, Sarah Wallace, who show that the, uh, these colonial narratives regarding bodies of color as disease were part of biopolitics, which defined colonized subjects as unfit for freedom or citizenship or belonging, and thus kind of in many ways legitimizing their control by colonial authorities, right? Similar narratives were also happening, as we know, about Chinese in Australia and Mexican-American migrants in the U.S. in the 20th century. So it is also a way to say that diseased bodies were source of fear in these settler colonies and an effort to say that white settler colonies should be for white bodies. So it was a public narrative also to ensure that those who did not understand science or medicine or medical health they had a suspicion in their mind. So even if there were migrants to keep white communities white and separate from those bodies to ensure that there was no intimacies. But also when colonized subjects migrated to new spaces, they were seen as being more susceptible to disease because they were unable to cope with new climatic factors. And that became an easy way of stereotyping. And we see this even with white bodies, right? Like British travelers and administrators and soldiers uh, were often subject to disease in colonized spaces, especially after they uh, traveled for a long time and came to the tropics. And it was a different kind of weather. It was a different kind of climate. But instead of kind of addressing the fact it is a different space, it is a different climate, our bodies are adjusting, they basically blamed the space, the tropical countries, the colonies as a space of disease and uh, their inhabitants, the colonized subjects were automatically conceived as bodies which were potentially contagious. And as a result, when those bodies moved, they thought that those disease moved with them. So while disease and medicine were used as an excuse card in reality, we now know that it was always an economic, political, or a threat to racial purity that fueled these well-crafted narratives of fear of disease to justify certain policies to keep people out. Yeah, thank you very much for elucidating that. Uh, this really is a wonderful chapter. Uh, we really enjoyed uh, reading it um, before, before our interview. Um, and I thank you for talking about your uh, kind of career aims as well about writing the decolonial world history. I really see how this really speaks to that, going across so many different themes, um, migration, labor, um, hawking as a form of labor, um, disease uh, and empire. They really speak in a wonderful way in what is actually a relatively short piece. Before um, letting you go, I really want to note that is, as we record is around two weeks since the publication of your book in North America, I know it came out earlier uh, in the UK, uh, entitled Waiting on Empire. And I just therefore don't want to miss an opportunity to quickly bring it up now. And um, firstly, um, congratulations. Um, second, and I just want to ask one question for having read the introduction. Um, in your introduction to your new book, you state um, quite rightly 
that the historiography of South Asian labor migrants under the British Empire remains overwhelmingly male focused. And your book therefore serves partly as a corrective to that trend. And I suppose what the question is, is what do you hope is achieved in the wider scholarly field following this corrective? How will a focus on the gender dimensions of South Asian labor migration affect our understanding of labor migration at large in the British Empire moving forwards? Thank you. Yeah, so I started this project to primarily give the long overdue attention to the most significant population of colonized women workers in Victorian and Edwardian Britain, um, but also to allow us to understand how IAS enabled British colonizers to maintain families despite their global mobility, which was critical to the resilience of the British imperial rule. But more broadly, I I hope to use, or I hope this book allows us to use uh, the case of traveling ayahs as a prism to understand and question the workings of imperial power, both from mm -hmm. above and below. And in doing so, allowing us to appreciate the gendered realities of these works and how the administrators uh, gendered perceptions of migration, eligibility for help and work allowed Aya's support and, you know, some kind of empathy that was disallowed to men like Luskars and in this case, the Hawkers too. Uh, thus allowing us to appreciate the gendered dynamics that were at play at borders and, and in the administrative circles. But also that being said, I use the case of traveling ayahs to revision the concept of waiting in labor migration histories uh, because waiting frequently has been seen, especially in historical studies, um, has been seen as a pause, as a liminal space, as a, a space that is in many ways a paralysis for those who wait or those who are left back. Uh, but in many ways, I found in those situations, we are taking away the verb, the, the aspect of verb that waiting, the word waiting enters our dictionaries in the form of. And it is because of the capitalist concept of time. And the work, the, the book tries to give back waiting its, ide its identity of a verb um, and shows how waiting while being a liminal experience um, can become a zone of appearing, a zone of negotiation and a zone busy with actions, even for those who wait or those who are made to wait. And in a larger aspect of it, I hope this book allows us to collapse regional definitional boundaries of South Asian history and British history and allows readers to see and appreciate the complexities and webbed connections between the two. Wonderful. I look forward to seeing it receive the accolades it no doubt will receive. One final question before we go. Obviously, you've just published a book. You've mentioned this project might have some extra project related to the um, uh, the Routledge handbook may have some extra kind of streams to follow as well. Just briefly, um, what are you working on now? Are there anything else in addition to all of these things that we might be able to see, read or hear about in the near future? 
Yeah, I'm working on two separate projects right now. Um, one of them is looking at transnational marriages uh, in, in forms of labor histories within the British Empire, where families did not move or they moved, but then they were made to move again. What happened to emotions? What happened to the institution of marriage and how marriage was more of a work in, in the case of uh, the empire? That's one project. And the other project is basically um, expanding the AYA project to look at other mobile workers in both domestic and public spaces across the British Empire. So kind of continuing that work, but bringing in more of gender and sexuality lenses into, into those uh, mobile uh, worker networks. I really look forward to uh, reading about those in coming uh, when outputs become available, reading more about those. Um, thank you, Professor Dutta, for your research and for discussing with me today. Um, I also want to thank um, Sam Glee Riemann for organising and producing the podcast. And I want to thank you, the listener, for streaming and or downloading. Uh, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this has been the Indian Ocean World Podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk, Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 